Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to the Free Expression podcast with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. If you're not already a subscriber to Free Expression, please do sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Russia. What exactly is going on there? Now, Winston Churchill famously described Russia as a riddle in a mystery wrapped inside an enigma. That description has probably never been more apt than it is right now. The abortive mutiny led by restaurateur turned gangster turned mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin last weekend has raised more questions than answers about the condition of one of the world's most important nuclear powers, a nation at war, no less. The more we learn about the attempted putsch, the more curious it seems. What was the aim of the Wagner Group's leader? Was he trying to seize power for himself or just force a change in Russia's military leadership? How much inside assistance did he have from the military? Why did he back off when his moment of opportunity seemed to be at hand? And why, despite his promise to punish the mutineers, did Vladimir Putin wind up striking a deal with Prigozhin that, that, at least on the face of it, seems to leave the Wagner leader at liberty? Has Putin himself been weakened by the events of the last week? And what does it all mean for the war in Ukraine and the United States' continuing support for Kiev's counteroffensive? And where, of course, does it leave the Russia-China alliance that Putin has forged with Xi Jinping? Well, to try to answer all these questions and more, I'm joined by former U.S. ambassador to Moscow and Beijing, John Huntsman. Huntsman has served in every single U.S. administration of both parties since that of Ronald Reagan, not including the current one of Joe Biden. He was governor of Utah from 2005 to 2009 and ambassador to China from 2009 to 2011 when he returned to the U.S. to run unsuccessfully for the Republican nomination in the 2012 presidential election. In 2017, he was nominated by President Donald Trump to be U.S. ambassador to Moscow and served there until 2019. He ran again for the Republican nomination for Utah governor in 2020, but lost the primary that year. And John Huntsman joins me now. Ambassador, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Hi, Jerry. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with the events of last weekend. What's your take on what happened there? And in particular, where do you think they leave Vladimir Putin? Well, there's a lot that we don't know. And I think we have to be somewhat humble when it comes to analyzing events in Russia, because oftentimes the United States and indeed the world are taken by surprise by events. So there's much we don't know, but there are some things that we do know. I think, number one, we can say with some confidence that Putin's uncontested reign is probably over. His authority has been compromised, perhaps fatally, which is a first in his 23 years of uh, governance. Number two, something that we all should reflect on because it has to do with what Putin is down deep beyond just a KGB operative, and that's he's also a politician. He's facing a constitutional requirement to declare in November of this year, just months away, if he's running for re-election in March of 2024. Well, now he's damaged goods. I can tell you, having been in Moscow during the election of 2018, when he last ran, he was soaring high. He achieved uh, 77% of the ballot box. Of course, the elections are rigged, but he likes to give the sense that there's real competition. He's actually a pretty good politician. He's a good glad hander. 
He knows how to give stuff away, free stuff away. He knows how to win votes. He knows how to lock down precincts. There is a much different background that he will face when he runs for re-election, if in fact he gets that far. And I think there is a big question mark regarding whether or not he actually gets that far. So what else do we know? We know that Putin has been publicly humiliated. So Here's a man who can lose 200,000 troops on the battlefield, literally a generation of young men massacred. He can lose half of his tank fleet, a third or more of his helicopter fleet. That doesn't matter much, but when he's publicly humiliated, that is the worst possible fate of all, because it happens in a system that abhors weakness. And his governing legitimacy, shall we say, so every leader in the world, as you know, Jerry, you're a keen observer of this stuff, has some connection to an issue or some form of legitimacy that allows them to govern, that gives the population of that country a sense to keep them in office. His legitimacy has always been tied to being a strongman, strength, the ability to protect. And when he is publicly humiliated and when weakness is exposed, this is absolutely the worst thing that can happen about Vladimir Putin. I mean, Stalin 70 years ago would have gunned down 10,000 people after an event like this. And what it does, in a sense, is it really shows the divide within the system, because here you have probably the most significant run on the state, the greatest existential threat in Putin's 23 years of service. What does he do? He gives him passage to Belarus. Meanwhile, you've got people languishing in prisons throughout the country for minor offenses against the state, for daring to take on Putin. So it really does out the hypocrisy in the system more generally. So fourth and finally, let me just say, I think the saga is by no means over, and Putin's future is not going to be decided in days, weeks, and even months ahead because he still controls the levers of power. He controls the state. He controls the security services. And last time I looked, the leading members of the Silibiki have been radio silent. There's nothing from Kov, from Narishkin. There's nothing from the rest of the people who sit around the table with him, Patrushev, et cetera, et cetera. Everything is radio silent. But Putin doesn't forget and he doesn't forgive. And I'm guessing that Yevgeny Prigozhin's betrayal will be answered at some point. We don't know when, but I think it's safe to assume that it will happen. So bottom line for me, and I think for what maybe your listeners should be anticipating and thinking about, is what are we doing to prepare for a possible post-Putin Russia? And who might be part of that post-Putin Russia? And in fact, what is the West doing? to have eyes on the rise of certain leaders that might begin to fill that vacuum. And it's been reported today that uh, one of those people, in fact, I think you just mentioned him, one of the senior generals in the Russian military, Sergei Surovkin, was made aware of Prigozhin's plans to lead the mutiny against the military leadership. Again, it's uncertain whether he was kind of tipped off and maybe actually helped to deal with the lead the response to it, or whether in some way he was complicit in it. What does that tell you, do you think, about the state of the Russian military leadership, and in particular their relationship with Putin? You just said that Putin continues to have sort of an iron control over the Siloviki and over the top leaders in Russia. But does this indicate maybe cracks, not just obviously with Wagner and the mercenary group, but cracks perhaps in the Russian military itself in terms of their uh, support for Putin? The very rise of Yevgeny Prigozhin would suggest that the Russian military, the Ministry of Defense, was not equipped to do everything that Putin wanted done. He needed his black bag full of additional tricks. And the only way he could do that was to stand up 
a standalone army, a movement that was led by somebody who he trusted completely that could work the markets in Central Africa, Syria, Libya, wherever else he didn't want the regular military to go, a group that could transact business deals, for example, in Central Africa. So it could essentially become a money-making enterprise. And I think as the Wagner Group grew up, And as its influence became more prominent within the Kremlin, there became a deep divide between the Wagner leadership, namely Prigozhin, and the leadership of the defense ministry, namely Sergei Shoigu and Valery Gerasimov, who's the top man in uniform in the Russian military. He's the head of the the joint staff. And I think that has only grown worse over time. And that takes us to the Battle of Bakhmut which we've all been reading about and following the last few months, bloody, grinding, World War I-like trench warfare, where Prigozhin, amazingly enough, took to social media and started criticizing by name some of these leaders within the Ministry of Defense, saying that the support wasn't sufficient, that they were largely incompetent, that there wasn't a strategy that made any sense at all. So he rose in power, and as I was watching this, in a sense, I thought that he was doing some of Putin's bidding. So Putin has a group around him. They are oftentimes at each other's throats. That's something that isn't known. So what also has been exposed, Jerry, is a little window into the Putin system, into the way his national security team works, or to the the extent to which they are highly dysfunctional, which I think we are seeing today. So you have high corruption, You have levels of incompetency within the national security establishment, largely because Putin does not want any rivals at all. He puts people in a singular position without broadening their portfolio because he doesn't want their power to grow. In the case of Prigozhin, this is the first example that I can remember where he's given a leash to a player in his national security team. In this case, somebody who is not the usual type who sits around that decision-making table. If you look at Prigozhin's background, he's quite unusual in terms of his rise. But he was able to amass power. People knew that Putin had his back. And I think that irritated the leadership of the Ministry of Defense, which was only exacerbated during the months and months of failed efforts in Ukraine. And all of a sudden, it comes to a head. And Prigozhin felt clearly that he had enough support, maybe even within the Siloviki, that he could launch a movement from Rostov down in the south of Russia, close to Ukraine. I mean, this shows the kind of tenacity and courage and maybe in the end ineptitude that Prigozhin had. He actually thought that he could ramble up to Moscow and take Sergei Shoigu, the defense ministry, and Valery Gerasimov, round them up and kill them which is what he had pledged to do. So all of this was out via social media for the world to see. I mean, there were various episodes that he made public, amazing as it was, because no one in Putin's inner circle had ever done anything like it. Well, we saw what happened in the last couple of days, ultimately. You've just laid out the the strength that Prigozhin had and the way he was able to lead his mercenaries in this, what looks like this this mutiny. We all watched events over the weekend. We all watched the defences of Moscow being prepared. And then we all watched as on Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, Moscow time, it kind of all suddenly de-escalated. There was a deal, apparently, between Putin and Prigozhin, mediated by Lukashenko of Belarus. Given the advantages he had, and given his objectives, why do you think Prigozhin backed down in the way that he seemed to have done? Well, I think there was a deal cut that probably sweetened the pot. So at the end of the day, I think a lot of it is dollars and cents for the people around Putin. They've all become enormously wealthy. They all have special contracts with the government. 
They've all taken former state-owned enterprises, which subsequently have gone private, and they become billionaires. And Pergosin is part of that group. So are they in it for nationalistic purposes? Well, of course they are. All of these people are highly nationalistic. But are they in it for money as well? So I'm guessing as I thought through this that, A, his life was saved, B, the charges were dropped, apparently, although I haven't seen any follow-on to that. C, his top commanders were given exile. And D, there's probably a financial aspect to this that we don't quite yet understand. So from Putin's standpoint, he sees in Pragozin a very dangerous man. It's better to have him in the tent than out of the tent. He knows too much. He has a following. He's a populist. And I think Putin, who has a very keen political sense, saw that Prigozhin was appealing to the rank and file within Russia with his populist messages. So saying things like to the heads of the Ministry of Defense, specifically uh, Sergei Shoigu, your kids are off slathering themselves with high-priced cosmetics on Instagram. Meanwhile, the kids of most other Russian moms and dads are being slaughtered on the battlefield. So populist messaging within the heartland. Putin, with his very keen sense of grassroots politics, would have picked up on this and thought, nah, I've got to deal with this. If I kill him, there could be enormous political implications. And this gets back to what I said initially at the ballot box, uh, March of 24. I may as well keep him in the tent because, A, I can benefit from his strategic sense And after all, we do have a relationship. He doesn't hate me as much as he hates the people at the Ministry of Defense. And B, there is a money-making enterprise that we're all part of. When we go into the Central African Republic, when we go into Libya, Syria, and other places, we do deals. Not only do we engage in warfare, training and collaboration with some local forces, but we do deals. We get concessions on raw materials and other things that are extremely valuable to the people who sit around. So at a time when there are hundreds, if not thousands of individual sanctions, individual and entity sanctions lodged against Russia, at a time when the the economy is completely dysfunctional, with the exception of gas, oil, arms sales, and the black market, I think they're looking at the balance sheet and saying, Pregosin is, in the end, a dealmaker, and he's important to our cash flow. So he's better alive than he is dead. He's better in the tent than out. And by the way, I can confide in Lukashenko, who can do a third-party bank shot transaction. And that seems to be where we are. But in the meantime, you have, I think, a populist sentiment brewing against the war. People, I think, are increasingly coming out against the war. And we'll see how many are willing to speak out. It will be quite interesting. But the general you talked about earlier, I'm guessing that the defense ministry had to have a line of connection with Progozin at a fairly senior level. So what better way than to deputize the deputy minister of defense as the liaison officer, who may have become too close to Progozin, may have been too much in the loop. I'm guessing that he was probably there as Shoigu's liaison with Progozin, and that may have become too close of a relationship, and now he's caught up in the middle. Just to be clear, you think, again, that the idea is to keep him inside the tent. So you don't share the view that some people do, that there was a general, David Petraeus, put it at the weekend, that you know he may want to not stand near any open window in tall buildings anytime soon. You don't think Putin will deal with him at some point in the way that he has traditionally dealt with anybody he sees as a threat or a rival? When we look at uh, certain cases, I mean, let's go to Alexander Litvienko or Sergei Skripal, some time passed before they were done in. And if you look at most of the assassination cases, and I can think of nine or 10 who were either strangled, poisoned, or shot, 
there were some years that transpired uh, before they were actually done in. So I'm guessing Putin is probably weighing the political value of keeping Prigozhin around, and we've covered all the reasons why he's important to keep around. But in due course, I think he'll be done in, is my guess. What happens to the military leadership? Oh, I mean, there is obviously dissatisfaction with the performance in the war. It's been pretty awful, as you know, the joke is, you know, that we used to think Russia had the second most powerful military in the world. Now we know that it only has the second most powerful military in Ukraine. And, you know, there's, it does seem to be dissatisfaction. And Prigozhin, you know, articulated it particularly clearly last weekend, articulated criticism of the war itself, but also the justification for the war and actually denounced the, the justification for the war. Do you expect... Putin to make significant changes in the military leadership or in other parts of the leadership of Russia as a result of what's now been so clearly exposed? I don't anticipate there being any personnel changes, largely because Putin has operated with the same team almost from the start. I mean, this goes back 23 years. And if you look at the backgrounds of Patrushev and Bortnikov, Narishkin less so, they all go back to the same origin. That's the KGB, and many of them to St. Petersburg. So years and years of conditioning, years and years of being brought into the system, having their trustworthiness tested. So again, this is kind of a stress test again for Putin's team. My guess, he doubles down on the people he's got around him. If he were to let uh, Sergei Shoigu go at the defense ministry, it would be a public outing of the failure on his part of the war efforts, which again would play into Prigozhin's hands. So Putin is a very stubborn man. And I'm guessing that instead of changing some of the senior people around him, he probably begins a purge of sorts within the security services at a lower level, maybe even within the military at a lower level. Not the kind where, as Stalin would have done, you round up thousands of people and you put a bullet to the head. But I'm going to keep a sharp eye out for evidence of purges within the system. Not at the top, because that's too visible, but purges within the mid-ranges of the security services and the military. It was actually, well, you answered my first question about where this leaves Putin. You said that you think, you know, it's, it's been revealed that he's no longer this sort of all-powerful, all-dominant figure, and that, you know, in some ways we're sort of sort of seeing, I'm paraphrasing now, but we're sort of seeing the beginning of the end. But you did say also you don't expect anything significant to happen in the next few weeks or months. So what kind of time frame do you think and what should we be looking for in future in terms of, you know, what happens to him? As you say, you've got the election next year, that presumably the result of that is not really in any doubt. But what's your expectation then about how long he survives and what happens? So let's just look at some angles of attack from the outside on Putin. The pressure that he's up against. So let's imagine continued failure within the Russia-Ukraine war context. Let's just imagine continued pressure within his own team, where he finds maybe that there are some pockets of disloyalty. Let's imagine a scenario where the Chinese begin to put pressure on him from the outside, as if to say, okay, we put forward a 12-point plan, let's get to the negotiating table and stop the violence and the nonsense. I'm not sure the Chinese would go that far, but I do know that they are probably extremely concerned about where this could lead. And we can talk about the details of that later. And then let's imagine finally that the political reality of running for re-election, where you do have to declare in just a few months your intentions to run for re-election. Well, Putin, as I remember in the election of 2018, wants the coast clear. He wants the environment to be perfect. He wants to be able to release new videos of hypersonic weapons and nuclear torpedoes and missiles that are being directed to certain targets within the United States and the West. So 
If you look at all of those dashboard indicators, he's under enormous pressure. But at some point, the people of Russia are going to have a say in what is going on. I say that because it's not unusual for 25,000 people to show up in Pushkin Square in Moscow on a Sunday afternoon without a lot of forewarning. This happens. The security services do their best to keep it uh, managed from getting out of hand. I'm guessing the people of Russia are going to have a say at some point. I don't know when. I don't know how it's going to manifest itself. But things are so upside down with so much uncertainty around Putin that I'm guessing we're going to be hearing more from the voices of the people that could be quite unprecedented. We're going to take a short break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Ambassador John Huntsman, who served as a U.S. ambassador to both Moscow and Beijing. We're talking, obviously, about the events in Russia. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with John Huntsman, former U.S. ambassador to Moscow. And we're talking about events in Russia in the last week and what they all might mean, both for Russian politics internally, but also for the United States and the wider world. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine. What do you think happens there? We're obviously in the early stages, it seems, of this Ukrainian counteroffensive. Presumably, if these divisions that seem to have been exposed in Russia in the last week you know, remain in any way, it further weakens Russia's ability to respond and to defend itself against the counteroffensive and to, and to hold on to its positions in Ukraine. How do you see the war there unfolding over the next weeks and months? Well, when you're down to protecting Moscow and Engels, Air Force Base, which is their most strategic bomber site, you know that the war is going in a very bad way for the Russians. The Ukrainians are going to need assets. They're going to need the ability to take out Russia's Air Force. My guess is Putin is looking at the assets that he has left. So he's also looking at the geography, and he's pretty much still stuck in Luhansk, Donetsk, a little bit south of Mariupol and Crimea. So all east of the Dnipro River. Much to his chagrin, because I'm guessing he would have thought he could draw a 50-yard line somewhere just from Kiev right on south to the Black Sea. That has not happened. So in his calculation, he is saying, so what do I need for a victory? If I can't take a good chunk of the country like I hope to take, so he sent in 190,000 troops on day one. My guess is that he never expected to take the entire country because you can't take Ukraine with 190,000 troops. So how many did the Nazis send in in 1939 into Poland? 1.9, 2 million troops. So I think all along his plan has been to say, okay, I already own 14 or 15% of the country. I'd like to up that to 25 or 30% and thereby make it impossible for Ukraine to become a member of NATO, because it becomes difficult upon joining NATO when you have an unresolved border dispute. So here he is sitting with the real estate that he had going in, and he's saying, okay, I've got to at least end with that. What do I need to protect 
that and the few gains that I've been able to pick up here and there in light of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which I think is going to be quite swift and quite successful. Well, he's got mines. He's got men. He has air assets. The air assets early in the war did not do well because the Ukrainians were appropriately equipped with the uh, assets to be able to take them down. So it's incumbent upon the West to not turn a blind eye at this moment because I think Putin is going to throw the garbage sink at the Ukrainian battlefield, not in the hopes of picking up a great deal more territory, but just with the ability to lock down the land he's already got. So you have to imagine, what does he have to announce to the people of Russia to be able to claim victory? He's got at least to be able to say that he's been able to gain some territory, pick up some strategically important sites and some land that is culturally and historically valuable to the Russian people, as many places are in Ukraine. So he'll be throwing increased air assets at the Ukrainians. The West needs to make sure that Ukraine is properly equipped with the assets to deal with with that. I think the information campaign, if I could say that, is really important. So this is less kinetic and more what Western support can encourage Ukraine to do, which is amp up the channels of communication to the Russian people about what is going on within the Russian high command. They all live in a bubble for the most part, even though you can access the internet without too much difficulty within Russia. But I think the information piece is less appreciated than it should be, because I think that's the zone of attack, if you will, that gets to the hearts and minds of the Russian people. And I'm guessing that the IO, the information operation side of this, will be amped up substantially. And then you need a whole lot more in the way of just 155 millimeter shells, which is a standard shell for tanks and howitzer cannons. And if you stop to think that Ukraine is blowing off maybe 5,000 of those a day, and we have one manufacturing plant in the United States, I think in Iowa, that's not making that many a day. So the inventory levels are being depleted. And we also have to meet a certain readiness criteria in the United States based on our own defense plans. So the inventory levels of just the basic material weapons and ammunition will be extremely important in the weeks and months ahead in order to make sure that Ukraine is properly equipped to carry this as far as it can. And I think Prigozhin has given the Ukrainians the gift of 16 months. And that is completely scrambling decision-making within the Russian high command, forcing them into a position of being in fumble formation. And I think Putin must, first and foremost, be very, very concerned about keeping his own side in order, in line, in order to prosecute any semblance of a counterbalance against what I think is going to be a very aggressive Ukrainian onslaught. You've talked about the continuing U.S. support for the war in Ukraine. More broadly, how should the U.S. respond now we've seen what we've seen in the course of the last week? Does it change U.S. policy? I mean, are we, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, that we've, we've got significant intelligence assets in Russia, perhaps, you know, egging on and hoping to destabilize Vladimir Putin. And presumably that continues and maybe even intensifies. But beyond that, how should the U.S. handle this? I mean, how should it, I mean, should it prepare for other, for what changes may come in Russia, but also maybe in a way, what can we do to help precipitate those changes? Well, I think externally working with NATO and our allies. So if you had told me two years ago that Finland would become a member of NATO, I would have called you crazy. If you had told me that Sweden might soon become a member of NATO, I would have called you doubly crazy. Yet here we are, and there's a barrier, a veritable barrier, built up where the Warsaw Pact once stood. 
This has got to be Vladimir Putin's worst nightmare, that the geography on his doorstep that he constantly tries to destabilize is moving in a direction that is supportive of Western unity against Russia. So that's number one. That's the big picture. And then we kind of drill down a little bit and we say, okay, from an intelligence gathering standpoint, this has got to be a major boon in terms of picking up human assets. You got a lot of people in relatively senior positions who are watching all of this play out and they're saying, I don't want to be part of it. I want to cut a deal. I want to escape. I want to figure out how to save my family, uh, how to resettle my moments that intelligence leaders look for in terms of really being able to pick up important assets that they can begin to work. And that in turn is going to open up a window on exactly what is happening behind the curtain and what we can expect some of Putin's next moves to be. But third, I would say more broadly, we have not done a very good job in analyzing post-Putin Russia. I mean, I tried to do that with our team when I was in Moscow. We did a lot of analytical work collection work on, okay, if Putin's hit by a bus, who's next? Well, the easy answer is always, it's the security services, it's Potkrashev or Zbornikov, or maybe it's somebody in uniform. That's the easy answer. But I think it's way more complicated than that. And I think the people will demand maybe something different. They've been living in this terrifying bubble for 23 years under Putin. But We have not done a very good job in doing the work that needs to be done in collecting enough good information on what does a post-Putin world look like, who might be part of it, and do we have any lifelines out to them? Are we cultivating any relationships that might put us in a preferred position? Because, you know, the Chinese are doing exactly that. The Chinese are anticipating their worst-case scenario which would be an implosion within the high command in Russia and complete chaos because Russia has seen this before. And they're saying, okay, like North Korea, which is on our border, our worst case scenario there is a unified peninsula with 30,000 American troops and a government consolidated under the leadership of Seoul. So for the Chinese, that's a nightmare scenario. So they're willing to put up with a crazy man to forestall that scenario from playing out. Similarly, although it's not really talked about, the Chinese have huge concerns about what lies north of them. In fact, they've they've had multiple battles, as you know, along the Amur River Valley into the Tarim Basin. I take you back to the late 1960s, which is probably the closest that in the modern era we've come to nuclear war between Russia and China over territory. So yes, there's been a kind of a recent temporary mutually convenient rapprochement, but down deep, there is tremendous distrust between China and Russia. And for China, the worst case scenario is the country falls into pieces, warlords take over, and ultimately you have leaders over these territories who are not friendly and not controllable and might even, at the end of the day, be friendly to the West. So although China doesn't talk about it, that's exactly what's going on in their mind, is a look at Russia. And for them, like with North Korea, dealing with a guy like Putin is better for them than the alternative, which is a collapse in the system. And that could very well be what we see, what we find. So my guess is that the Chinese are probably cultivating a next generation of leaders. They're out putting out their feelers, collecting information on who could be next, and how do we have to ingratiate ourselves with 
these possible next key players in a post-Putin Russia. And finally, on China, Ambassador, what lessons do you think Xi Jinping is drawing, both obviously from the events of the last week, but more broadly, perhaps also from the rather unsuccessful war that Russia's been prosecuting in Ukraine? Does it, in your view, make the risk of China itself doing something aggressive vis-a-vis Taiwan, obviously, is what we're all focused on. You served in China, too, so you know China well. How do you see the leadership in China assessing its relationship with Russia and what's happening there and what it will mean for China's immediate strategic ambitions? Well, we have to separate Taiwan, a place I've lived twice, going all the way back to martial law. I lived there once under martial law, under Zhang Jinghua. In the late 70s, democracy was born in 1987, 1988, upon the death of Zhang Jinghua and the rise of Li Donghui. So I, I know Taiwan well, and I've lived on the China side as well, and I've watched that dynamic for decades. You have to differentiate the Taiwan equation in Putin's mind from the Russia equation. I think Xi Jinping sees Taiwan in a much different context than it does Russia. Uh, I think Taiwan for the Communist Party is a longer-term aspiration. Yes, they talk about it in highly militant and threatening ways because that's what the party does. And hardline elements, namely the military, expect that, particularly around party congresses, which, of course, we just concluded last year, the 20th Party Congress, and then more recently, this last March, the Lianghui. And we're going to hear it again for the Taiwan presidential elections coming up right around the corner in January. So my guess is that we're experiencing a lull right now, but the rhetoric around Taiwan is going to hit a high point probably between January and the inauguration of the new Taiwanese president, whoever that happens to be, sometime later spring. So the rhetoric is going to get hot, but my own sense is that Xi Jinping doesn't have any immediate aspiration to destroy a golden goose that is so important to his economy. He knows full well that it would destroy the Chinese economy, that all of the economic indicators that they keep their eyes on would turn upside down. In the case of Russia, I think it's a very uneasy dance he's doing with Putin because of the level of distrust. I think with Russia, he sees a rattlesnake around his ankle that has to be dealt with more immediately. And that is with each passing day and the bad news that comes out about Putin, about the war, about the dysfunction of the Russian government, all of this puts the Chinese leadership in a very vulnerable spot because they did go all in. And I'm guessing that there are many in the high command in Beijing, certainly at the standing committee of the Politburo level, who have serious misgivings about going that far in with Vladimir Putin and Russia. I say that because I've heard senior people in the Kremlin talk about the Chinese, and I've heard senior people in China talk about Russian leadership. And (laughs) I've been able to develop a sense of what they both think of the other. And there isn't a lot of love lost. There is mutual distrust. They've been given a moment of mutual convenience against the West that they are trying to exploit. But I think it's a very tenuous one, quite frankly. And my guess is that Xi Jinping is going to keep his head down. He's going to let this play out. He's only going to appear when there's good news or documents to be signed that would show mutual progress in his relationship with Russia. And I don't anticipate any of that occurring anytime soon. So you think that, again, and in terms of lessons learned this week, you think that Xi Jinping's, any lessons that he's learned from what's going on in Russia, probably what sort of tend him to be somewhat more cautious, do you think? Or do you think it just doesn't really feed into his planning? If anything more cautious, you have to remember for 50 years, the Taiwan issue has been managed. (laughs) 
It's way more complicated today and way more dangerous simply because of the level of advancement and sophistication of the Chinese military and their ability to do grave harm in the region. And they're way more belligerent posture following, and I take this back to the 18th Party Congress, probably 2012, when there were some early signs of that change in the system occurring. But Toward Taiwan, unless there is an overt move toward independence, and that's why this presidential election is going to be so important to watch. So if you have William Lai, who is the current vice president under Tsai Ing-wen, he's already the DPP, the the Min Jindang candidate, the Democratic Progressive Party. He's also seen as a deeply green candidate, by which I mean he's largely favored independence from the beginning of his political career. That's the one issue that is likely to bring fireworks in the Taiwan Strait. So he's being very cautious. If you notice his statements most recently, he's set aside any talk of independence. I'm going to take a pragmatic approach. We want peace across the strait. We want to kind of get back to the 92 consensus. Even that's more of a KMT approach, more of a Guomidang approach, which is getting back to the agreement that was signed in Singapore in 1992 between former Shanghai Mayor Wang Daohan and Taiwan uh, diplomat Gu Zhengfu. There's a sense that both sides are kind of walking carefully back toward the 92 consensus, which is more premised on direct exchanges, trade and people to people, and getting it back into a less aggressive mode. We'll see what happens on that front, but I'm expecting the Taiwan election is going to bring some real fireworks because William Lai is going to be under pressure by the uh, Green faction within the DPP to talk about independence, to position his race more around independence for Taiwan, and that's going to bring enormous blowback from Beijing. Well, plenty to uh, watch out for there and uh, living in interesting times, as the Chinese would say. Ambassador John Huntsman, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Jerry, such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Please do join us again next time. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks again.